it's not over for them. They're still on their journey. They're still trying to find a home for their family, trying to find a place in this earth. They haven't found it. I mean, the four million haven't found it, you know? You're listening to Asylum Speakers, The Journey. I'm your host, Jazz O'Hara, and together with some very special guests, we'll be taking you on a journey across the world without you having to go anywhere. For this very special season of the podcast, we followed common migration routes taken by refugees and asylum seekers from Africa, the Middle East and Ukraine, all the way through Europe, documenting stories along the way. We spent time with people leaving their countries and everything behind them, to the volunteers and staff working alongside them and the host communities in each of the migration hotspots we visited. Many of the people we spoke to along this journey are being supported by projects funded by Comic Relief's Across Borders programme, which, thanks to the donations from the UK public, invest in organisations supporting refugees and asylum seekers along these routes. These first-hand accounts are here to educate, inspire and debunk some of the common myths and misconceptions around migration today. Listen carefully because... For many of these people, this podcast is the first opportunity they've had for their important story to be heard. Join us as we transcend borders, nationalities, religions and languages to hear from the people with which we share this world, our worldwide tribe. Welcome back to episode two of The Journey, a six-part podcast series following migration routes from Africa, the Middle East and Ukraine to Northern Europe. In last week's episode, we explored the reasons why people were leaving their countries. We heard from Ahmed, who fled Boko Haram in Nigeria, Albino, who fled the civil war in South Sudan, M, who is currently still facing persecution as a result of his sexuality, and Mustafa and Mohammed, who both fled the brutal war in Syria. This week, We are taking a deep dive into what life looks like for asylum seekers in the first safe, and I say this in quotes, country they arrive to. People often ask me, so why don't refugees stay in the first safe country they land in? It's a comment I see a lot on social media, and it's one that I feel that there is a lot of judgment and misinformation around. So this episode is designed to answer exactly that. I'd like everyone who genuinely wonders about this question to be able to listen to this and fully understand why a person's journey can go on to span many countries. We'll be hearing from both refugees and people working in the humanitarian sector in countries like Turkey and Lebanon that border Syria and other conflict zones. Our first stop on our journey today is Turkey, the country that hosts the most refugees in the world at approximately 4 million, most from neighbouring Syria. I'm really, really excited to introduce you to our guest here today and for you to hear from her. Her name is Anna O'Rourke and she's an old friend of mine. She's a wonderfully eccentric Irish lady who left the comfort of her retirement in Ireland and set up a community centre in a city called Izmir in Turkey. So her community centre is called Tiafi and it supports not just refugees but also the struggling local community. I'll let Anne tell you more.
My name is Anna Rourke and I'm from Waterford in Southern Ireland. Five years ago, when the crisis with regard to the refugees was fairly bad and there was children being washed up on the shores, it really upset me and it really did break my heart. I had retired and I decided that I would come out of retirement and I would find a place where the most vulnerable people I could, you know, support. There was a lot of people in Turkey, particularly young women with um, small children um, who had come across the borders with husbands dead or missing by themselves, don't speak the language, don't know anybody in Turkey, have no money, no support at all, completely lost and very young, some of these women with, with children. So I thought that's where we should focus in on. So that's how Tiafi started. I rented an old shoe factory. It was a deprived area. There was about 60,000 refugees in that area. I wanted a centre where somebody, when they were in trouble or somebody had a problem, could just come in the door and sit down and cry if they wanted. And that's exactly what we have. And then we see how we can help them. And Tiafi is not rich. We're not top heavy. I'm a volunteer and have been for nearly five years. Uh, we're always broke. But it doesn't really matter because we work very hard and we really try to make a difference, you know. Come in the door and you can sit down and you can tell us your woes. And whether you're Syrian, Somalian, Turkish, it doesn't matter if you have a problem. It doesn't matter at all, okay? Just just come in and sit down. Let's see what we can do and how we can help you. There's massive problems here, massive, massive problems. And I do believe that the Turkish government have done their best. I don't think there's any other country that's taken in four million refugees. I really don't. But it's put immense pressure on the hospitals in the area, on the local schools in the area, on all the facilities in the area. And I really honestly believe that Europe should stand up and, and do something about this. We talk about discrimination, you know, and we say there should be no discrimination. And then we see the situation where at the moment Ukraine, you know, they're getting buses, free buses, you know, come, come, come to Ireland, come to England, come wherever. And, and I see people that are hungry in Tiafi, families that are hungry. They don't have anything to eat even. And they're just not welcome. And they don't understand that Syrian people don't understand what they did wrong. They can't understand. So it's a very sad situation sometimes when particularly some of the men would say to you, you know, what do you think we did wrong, Anne? Or why don't they want us? Syrian refugees are not wanted anywhere. They can't go back to Syria and they also can't get through to Europe. But even if they take that boat, they, you know, that boat is terrific. You know, I've seen people terrified, terrified with their children, you know. I've seen them on the other end in Greece where they've come off the boat. I saw one man carrying a child, but had lost his wife and a, and a little eight-year-old girl on that trip across and was numb with grief. How could I justify that as a European? I'm sorry you have to suffer like this after suffering from a war because Europe won't open its door for you. So Tiafi is really a place where we try to particularly support the women. And then we have 68 disabled children, some of them from war injuries, some have lost limbs. I don't think there's any end to the suffering of those children, really. They, it just continues. Uh, one of the things that gets me is we have at the moment 
over the last two years, we've had a number of deaths. You know, we've had some children, disabled children that have died. We've also have a lot of cancer at the moment, you know, cancer from worry, I suppose, really. And cancer from stress, yeah. And uh, and when you get to know some of the refugees and, you know, we had one lovely lady that was an engineer. Father, her husband was a bank manager and uh, also a lawyer. And they had done everything right in their lives. You know, they'd gone to university, they'd worked hard, they'd done everything. When you see her being buried in a pauper's grave, when you see her husband standing beside her and he doesn't have the hundred lira, which was 10 euros at the time to, to put, you know, to, to buy the little wicker to put her down under and the sticks to put down under the ground. It, it, it's terrible because it, it's the end. It's done. It's finished. Her life is finished, you know. When I see the waste, what a beautiful woman she was and, and a, a smart, clever, beautiful woman. And when I see the waste of her life, you know, the sadness towards the last few years of her life, it's the no hope that kills me, you know, when I see people and their hope is gone. You know, that's really hard, I think. When I feel we can give them hope, when I feel we can, you know, tell them, come on, we can, it's better, it's, you keep yourself going. But when there's some cases like that, when I don't know what to say anymore, I don't know what to do anymore, you know? So all you can say, and we often say it, is just lean on us a little bit, you know, and see what we can do. I remember as, thinking as a volunteer, because I'm not, uh, you know, in my um, prime, we'll call it. <laughs> what have I got to contribute, you know? And actually, everybody has something to contribute. As long as together, as a group, we can make a difference, we just keep going with Tiafi, you know? Okay, so as you can hear, Anne is amazing. And so is her community centre, Tiafi, where I've spent lots of time over the years. Uh, last time I was in Turkey, back in 2016, 2017, 2018. And now I'm going to take you with me as she took us on a tour. This time we were there just recently to see how far the centre has come in recent years and how much work it continues to do to support this community. We actually arrived during the chaos of the lunchtime food distribution with long queues of people waiting outside the front of the building and we were immediately interrupted uh, on our tour by a young mother who was very excited to introduce us to her new baby. We were doing about 450, but we ran out of money. So, um, well. Sorry, I got you a present. You know, she gave birth and she wants to show you the baby. I know, I saw the baby yesterday. The baby's brand new, yeah. The little boy. You saw the baby yesterday, brought her into the room. Congratulations. You know, she came, you know, before she came with us, you know, she was very pregnant. And then she came to Anne and she said, I I got the baby. I want to show it to you. So, Anne receives all the newborn babies here in the center. What's his name? What's his name? It's Bassam. It means the one who smiles or something. Bassam, the one who keeps smiling. They lost the her brother-in-law. He died. And that's his name. And they gave the name to the baby. Go in and get it. She was on the street with the last baby and um, she was begging on the street so that's how I connected with her and kind of brought her in so, but she's a mammy now with three or four so, so you met yeah. her while she was actually yeah she was begging on the street so I got her to come in and now we kind of try and give her a little bit of support mm -hmm. if we can but we have so many it's really difficult you know it's really difficult so what I try to do with the baby stuff is I keep it in one room in the back to kind of mind it because 
it's not yeah, easy to get. In high demand. Yeah, yeah it is, yeah. So this, this is amazing. So this 400. is 450 a day now, right? It's doing well, but we're running out of food again. And we're in. we had to stop uh, registering people mm-hmm. because we can't go any further than 450. It's just too much for us, you know? And we just don't have the money and we don't have the, the even the staff. We don't have staff and any volunteers, you know? So it's been difficult. So that's what we do. And we make sure that they get good nourishing food. We try to make sure there's some vegetables, you know, that kind of thing. So I'll show you the kitchen. Hi, how are you? This is a little one that comes in by herself to get fed. No mother, father is very, very ill. And she has a little brother and little sister as well. Cuckoo, 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 cuckoo. Get over, get some food. This is all the, that's the only words he ever uses. <laughs> what more do you need? I understood. Gather. Gather. Give, give him some yemek, yeah, yeah. Okay. So the kitchen is good. We, we do, try and do little breakfast in the mornings for the kids, but we don't always have the money, but what we do, we do it. Okay. We want an recipe. But now at the moment we have people coming in from Somalia, Afghanistan. We have Nigerians. Oh, so the demographic is changing as well. Yeah. You know? This boy making himself some orange juice. Yeah. He's just squeezing into his glass. Yeah. <laughs> so we've 20,000 people on our list looking for food. Just here, Tiaki. 20,000. 20,000, yes. I mean, there's some women will take buses to get here. Every single day I'm getting somebody coming in crying, saying, we've no food in the house. One man came in yesterday and he was crying and he said to me, oh, my children are starving. I mean, I go to houses now, there's nothing in them. There's no food in them. Nothing. I mean, I don't know how many houses I've been to recently where there's nothing in them. So I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know because they just have nothing. They have less than nothing. They've less than they've ever had. So you'd say that this is worse than it's been in the time? A hundred times worse. A hundred times worse. I mean, we're under serious pressure here, you know? And that's with the influx of the... Turkish community that you've had to support as well, you think? Because it was always Turkish, Syrians mainly, yeah, right? Well, well, we always kind of tried to, because of integration, we always try and found, found a way. But the Turkish people are, are very poor as well. Mm-hmm. People are working maybe 14 hours a day for eight euros. And they're working in the worst jobs you can imagine. They're desperate for work. They're desperate for help. There is no doubt about it. People are going hungry. And it's so mad because you're next to a bakery. Mm. You're next to a supermarket. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, the and you can't feed there. your children. You can't give your children bread. So just to reiterate what Anne is saying here, the worsening economic situation in Turkey is making life increasingly difficult for the local people, refugees and the NGOs like Tiafi that support them in Turkey. Anne took us into one of the little classrooms full of children between the ages of five and seven. I mean, I see a lot of the young women now with small children and they're in terrible trouble, you know. Um, I think it shows some real strength to be able to keep going throughout all these years here on the band. 
how often do you go? I go home. Ireland? I was home at Christmas. And does it come from Ireland? Ireland. Oh, yeah, I do. I often drink loads of wine yeah. and dance. Yeah. Dance like a mad, like a mad woman. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, bottle of wine, but anyway, yeah, yeah. Dance like a mad woman. Yeah. But it's just very sad that we haven't gone forward. They have their lives haven't gone forward. Yeah, they feel like things aren't getting better. Bye. Uh, they've lost hope, you know. So the kids are the only hope they have in the future. That's all, you know. It's, you know, get them to school. The kids do brilliant in school. I have to say, amazing. This is our the, where we do the physiotherapy. We have 68 kids at the moment. Mm -hmm. 68 kids, 50 on the waiting list. Wow. Um, All of them with similar. Is it cerebral palsy? Bomb injuries, cerebral palsy, scoliosis, cystic fibrosis. At this moment, I recognise the face of a beautiful little girl hanging on the wall of the physio room. Do I know this girl in the picture? Yeah, that's Lena. Remember, she died last week. Week before last. Yeah, we've had about four deaths since Christmas. Anne and her team at the centre do incredible work with children injured by bombs. Whilst we stood in the physio room, she started showing us some photos and videos of the incredible progress of two young girls, sisters, Noor and Janan, on her phone. OK, so this was Noor when the bomb went off. So her leg is gone, mm -hmm. as you can see. Her leg is gone, the bomb went off. It, uh, it killed her mother and father. So then we got the prestige, and again we have to go and find the money for this. Oh, look at her yeah. face, she's yeah. so determined. Yeah, the bomb killed her mother and father. Okay. Who's she with now? She was family. Grandparents, six girls were left by themselves. Mm -hmm. oh, and herself and her sister her. are both wow. of them. So Janan is her sister. She was also in the bomb. She was. She's younger than her. She is paralysed from the waist down. That's it, Janan. Your sisters. Um, they're sisters. Yes. And you can see she can't move from the waist down. Uh -huh. She's paralysed. Both of them, Janan and Noor, were mm -hmm. holding the mother's hand when the bomb went off. So, for me, it depicts the whole thing about the war. You know, she suffered a terrible amount that child. You know, and. We don't know if she's going to live, really, you know, at this stage. So we really are very upset because she didn't have a day without suffering, you know? Yeah. No mommy, no daddy. Yeah. So the bombs were terrible things, yeah. After our tour of the centre, we sat down in a quiet room to hear more stories from Anne. She told us about a young boy who had come to see her, telling her that he was looking for work as a barber. We went on to meet this kid and I wanted to share this story with you because he was so lovely and young and confident and skilled beyond his years and it was amazing to see him literally running his own salon inside Tiafi at 14 years old. This little fella came in one day, I think he was about 13, and he said to me, oh, I'm barber, you know. So I said, oh yeah, you know, and he said, yeah, I'm a barber, yeah. So I said, oh, okay, that's great. Good for you, you know. Long story short, he works here every Thursday. Okay, and he does free haircuts. And is he still 13? He's 14 now. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. And what's really lovely about it, he does really cool cuts, you know, with bits okay. here. Line, and, you like know, shaved lines. Yeah, yeah, shaved lines, yeah. Nike and the back. kids, like, you know, they're this height and they're coming out going, you know. <laughs> Look at me, you know. So they're wicked excited. The kids, it's cool. It's really cool. Anybody that has any entrepreneurial skills, I'm grabbing hold of, you know. And I'm saying, okay, let's see what I can do for you. It really is the only way forward mm -hmm. for many of them now. You know, we can we you can feed people for so long, you know, and you can help them in other ways. But really, until you start to get some of them 
living their own lives. It's really what this a community centre like Teafi should be about. Anne told us another story about a young girl who needed prosthetic legs, but the process of getting them for her didn't quite go to plan and brought up some surprises along the way. I have a little girl, little girl, she's not a little girl, she's 19, both her legs blown off, you know? And when she came in, she was saying, I'd love to be able to walk, like, you know? And I was saying to myself, Jesus, you know, what are we going to do? And, you know, I'd say two weeks ago, maybe even, yeah, two or three weeks ago, got a knock on the office door and Mohammed is standing there and he says, look who is coming to see you. And she's standing up on the prosthetic. And I had been with her when we were measuring for them, you know, just myself and herself. And I was saying, you're not to get longer legs than me, okay, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and the first thing she wanted to do was see our heights, you know, and she was taller than me. And I was giving out hell, you know, I was, and I told you, you know, not to get those. But it was very funny too, because when we got the first prosthetic, we didn't have a lot of money, we got them for her. And she got them on and Mohammed said to me, Go, come into the, uh, into the sports room, she's got her legs on, you know. I said, oh, Jesus. Now, she wouldn't be standing up, obviously. It was just getting the fit. So I said, great. But she's sitting like this, you know. I said, oh, yeah, that's good, yeah. And I said, now bend them. And she said, I can't. I said, what do you mean you can't bend them? She said, there's no bend on them. I said, there's no knees. No, they had just made, because we only had 6,000 lira, so it just made straight legs. With no knees. With no knees. So she had to sit like this. And how can you walk? Yeah, well, you can walk because you can stand, yeah, you can stand, but you can't sit. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so I just said, I just said to Muhammad, Jesus, Muhammad, you know. He said, "You never asked for knees." I said, "Oh, for God's sake! <laughs> surely we, surely they're a given. I thought you'd give her knees. Like, I'm sorry, I didn't have to ask for knees. Yeah, you know, sure. she has knees now. I just, I said, send them back. And he said, "You have no money." And I said, "I'll find someone that'll buy her knees." It's a lot about lean on me, right? Girl, in a few months ago, came in couldn't stop crying, three kids, just young girl, couldn't stop crying. Couldn't even get her to talk to me, she was crying so much. So she was completely hysterical. I couldn't, really couldn't calm her down. And I remember saying to her that day, just lean on me. Then she she was leaning on me, you know, she actually ended up leaning on my shoulder. I said, just lean on me, just do this for a little while, you know, so I'm here for you now and, and you come in to me when you have problems. And she came in then for like about 10 times over the next few weeks. I have no food in the house. Okay, let's find a way. I get free food. Okay. I couldn't give her everything, but I gave her what I could. But it was just the fact of saying to somebody, lean on me. You know, just lean on me and I'm going to look after you. Now she's doing the sewing course. We're going to buy her a sewing machine. She's also doing some cleaning jobs, which she's really brilliant at. And getting good money because she's so good at it. Slowly, she's, she's, she's smiling again. She's talking again. She's mixing with the women here. The women are very much alone, you know, because a lot of the husbands are gone, a lot of the husbands are dead, you know, and they're very young. I mean, these women are all in their 30s, you know, very early 30s, most of them. Mm-hmm. So there's a load of sadness, mm-hmm. you know. That's why it's important to try and every now and again lighten it a bit, you know, because they are overloaded with sadness, you know. I worry about the the future for the lycoterapy because I worry about the people that are, like, 
13 and 14 and 15, particularly the young boys, you know, that have grown up with no education. If they're working, they're treated like dogs, you know, and they're getting next to no money, you know, and they're living in Turkey. The Turkish people don't want them. Some of the refugees have said to me, what did, what did we do wrong? What did we, and, you know, why, why, what, what do you think we did wrong? Or what, what's wrong with us, you know? And you're saying, there's nothing wrong with you and me. And they're saying, but they don't, they don't want us, you know? And I'd be saying, I want you, you know? And they'd be, That's, what can you say? You know, I'd be saying, but I want you. And they'd be saying, but nobody wants us. They don't want us, you know? I'm after talking too much now. I have to stop talking. No, okay. Sorry, lads. Well, there you have it from the amazing Anne O'Rourke. Whilst I was in Izmir, I also caught up with an academic and scholar focusing on migration. Her name's Iselin, and she was really able to provide some very useful and important context for me to the stories that we've just heard from Anne about life for refugees in Turkey. My name is Iselin. I work at Yashar University in the Department of International Relations as an associate professor, and I'm also the UNESCO Chair on International Migration. In 2015 and 16, you might all remember that we were seeing everywhere people on the parks trying to find someone to take them to the Greek islands. It was so visible. And then following agreement of, uh, you know, 18 March, EU-Turkey statement, then we started to observe more and more migrants are being stranded in Turkey. They're not able to reach where they would like to put their asylum applications. That was the EU-Turkey deal, right? Can you explain that a little more? Mm-hmm. That's the EU-Turkey statement, which is signed on 18 March uh, 2016. And the main aim of the statement was to stop irregular crossings from Turkey to the Greek islands. This was done by sending people back from Greece to Turkey in a violation of international law. Turkey was also paid millions by the EU to make these crossings harder for people. So everything changed and people were forced to stay in Turkey. So they started their life here, okay, and they they started to be a part of life. Like they work, of course, informally, most of them. They make friends, they get married, they have their children. So it has been now 10 years more that we have Syrians here. And so they set up a life here. However, it's not only the Syrians. Of course, like we are hosting 3.7 million Syrians, which is really a great number. And I know that in Izmir, it's almost 4% of the total population. In some cities of Turkey, the numbers are more than the locals, such as in Kilis. 20% are Turkish citizens, but, you know, almost 80% is Syrians. So that is making people say, this is a threat. This is a threat to my security. This is a threat to my culture. This is a threat to my language. This is a threat to my job. But the, the, the Syrians are also accompanied by many other nationalities of migrants from Iran, you know, from Afghanistan, from Pakistan. It's a lot of nationalities. And as long as those people are stranded in Turkey, that makes their life very difficult. Within Turkey, there is also capacity limitations, you know, because Turkey yeah, is the country, is, is developed, but we are passing through a very severe economic crisis. 
you know, and the living conditions, especially for low-income people, makes life more difficult to access some basic needs and basic services. Turkey is always, you know, known with its hospitality. However, now when you have strained resources, people are now questioning if I'm unemployed as a citizen of Turkey, if I have economic problems, if I'm not able to send my child to school, you know, if I'm not able to buy them proper food, and my neighbor is a refugee, but they are getting food packages from international organizations. Actually, this is not the case, but for 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 people's ordinary people's minds, that is an issue that what is going on. Uh, in the first initial years of the Syrians in Turkey, I'm talking about, you know, 2012 till maybe 2017, that was more uh, hospitality and tolerance. But in the recent year with the increasing, worsening economy and also the increasing number of new babies, you know, the issue has started to be more social tensions emerging in the community. It's not easy here for them. Uh, they would like to be in a more welfare country. We need to think about what will happen, how we are going to manage this, because it seems that there will be no stable or secure life back in Syria soon, and no one is willing to get more and more Syrians. How many more people can Turkey host? As long as we have more conflicts back in the source countries, wars, repression, poverty. If the push factor is so high, whatever you do, you secure your border. Actually, you, you must not prevent because those people are not here voluntarily, are, are forced to come such a long ways. You cannot stop migration. Do we have still conflicts back in their region? If yes, yes, they will continue. They can't return and there's they no option return. for them to go yeah. forward either. Yeah. It sounds like to me that Europe is not doing their part here, mm -hmm. that actually Turkey has a huge number and that Europe could take a lot more people from Turkey. Would you say that that would be a good solution for the future? It's not only Europe, let's say, like more developed countries, mm -hmm. United States and Canada, you know, Australia. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, the Europe is the nearest. Uh, if people, they have their family members, yes, we need, if possible, respect and reunite, you know, the families. But yes, there are many developed countries and, you know, we can, they can do more for these people. Don't treat Turkey like, you know, um, externalize the issue on Turkey and don't treat Turkey like a buffer zone. I'm very much critical about let's pay for you and you keep those people there. This should not be the approach. If you treat countries like this, it's not only for Turkey. The countries on the external borders of the EU, what happens later on is then a migration issue becomes more and more politicized and migration becomes like a more and more bargaining tool for many other issues. And that's very risky. That's very dangerous. Now, some of the countries, you know, they received Ukrainians and I hope that they are not going to forget about here what we have Afghans, Syrians, many people from Africa. Everyone loves its country. They are forcibly moving. So it's a forced migration. We have to think more and more why people migrate. 
Can we do something better in their region? Okay, so we've heard in depth from Anne and Iselin just how difficult it is for refugees in Turkey. Our next stop on our journey today is another of Syria's neighbouring countries, Lebanon, where a third of the population is a refugee. Let's head to Lebanon's capital city, Beirut, a city that I love very much. My friend Dara describes it well. It's a charming city. It's toxic how beautiful and charming it is when you walk in a street and you discover a tiny little bakery that makes fresh manouche and that plays a beautiful Feirou song. It has something really romanticizing to it. But the thing is, it also has a really ugly side, which is the refugee camps, which is poverty which is violence and abuse. So it, 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 that's the thing. It's such a black and white. It's back and forth. You're dragged. Like when I leave Lebanon, I'm excited to be out and have electricity. And after a few days, I was like, I miss it. I miss the sound of people in the morning and smelling the mix of coffee, someone smoking a cigarette on their balcony. That was Dara. You might recognise her voice from a previous podcast episode uh, from last time I was in Beirut. She's my best Beirut pal and we will be hearing more from her later. But first, I'd like to introduce you to Dalal, who works for UNHCR here in Beirut. I met Dalal in a bustling coffee shop in a Syrian neighbourhood in the city and we had this conversation over a freshly squeezed orange juice and mint tea. Dalal gave me some really interesting context on the scope of the situation here and just how severe the economic crisis is in Lebanon right now and the impact that it's having on the huge population of mainly Palestinian and Syrian refugees living here in Lebanon. In Lebanon, there are around 840,000 Syrian refugees registered with the UNHCR, but then it is estimated that there are 1.5 million refugees. But then you also have around 14,000 refugees from other nationalities. So you have Sudanese refugees, Ethiopian refugees, Iraqi refugees as well. The operation in Lebanon is one of the most complex operations in the region. Because although Lebanon is the tiniest country, it's the smallest country in the region compared to Jordan, or compared to Syria, or compared to Iraq, so it's the really tiny, small Mediterranean <laughs> country that you find, uh, find on the map. It is one of the most complex operations because Lebanon hosts the highest or the largest number of refugees per capita. So it's one third of its population that is a refugee population. For the past two and a half years, Lebanon has gone through crisis after crisis with no time to breathe, to recover, and to reinvent. It started where we had a, the people's uprising, you know, against uh, the government and Tarada. And then right after comes COVID-19. And then with COVID-19, you had Beirut Blast. And you've been here for Beirut Blast, and every time I, I, uh, I talk about Beirut Blast, I get chills. Just to be clear here, when Dalal mentions the Beirut blast, she is referring to the devastating explosion in the city's port in 2020. After Beirut blast, you have this, you know, constant deterioration of financial, 
socioeconomic situation that is making it extremely hard for the people in here and for the most vulnerable who are the first hit. Like the most vulnerable is already vulnerable. And then when you have this amount of crises and one crisis after the other, they're the first hit. They're the ones who will be left with nothing, nothing to survive skipping meals and dropping uh, children out of school and having an impact on your mental health and, 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 and. Dalal shared a beautifully inspirational story about a woman that she referred to as the smiling refugee. Her name is Heba. Heba, which means a gift. So she's a mother and she's a widow. She lost her husband in Syria during the war. And she fled to Lebanon and she lived in the Bekaa. And she works there in the fields or the potato season or for the garlic season or for the onion season. So she helps in the land, like many, many, many also refugees. And she was so starking with her never-ending smile. And it was a genuine smile. It comes from the heart. You can just feel it. You know, you, can, you cannot not smile back. You know, it's like this contagious kind of uh, true smile. Her eyes were smiling. And she stood out. And then I was like, how come you're smiling? <laughs> you know, tell me, because there's something, like I cannot stop smiling when I'm when talking I'm to you and when I'm around you. What is your secret? And I was really genuinely curious at knowing where does this come from? And she was like, well, you know, I tried crying and I tried feeling sorrow for myself and I tried all kinds of sadness and all shades of despair and nothing came out of it except for constant physical pain and I was constantly ill and my kids also were, were sick. So I thought to myself, why not try something else? Why not go for the exact opposite of that? Why not put on a smile in the morning and then see what happens? And it struck me, it struck me just because this is like, you know, people pay loads of money for trainings about happiness, and how to be happy, and mindfulness, and, da, da, da. and this woman, in the hardest and in the most difficult situation that she is going through, being a Syrian refugee, fleeing, fleeing Syria to Lebanon and living here for 11 years, you know, and having been through the hardest experiences you could ever imagine, she was wise, and she was inspired to get this wisdom from what she lived, from her own experience. She was living it. She didn't need the classes or the therapy sessions. Or She didn't need all that, but that's her. And I think this is a gift. Others, they might not have this ability to get this wisdom or to reach that state, and they're still struggling. And their struggle is beyond imagination in some ways. We know that nine out of 10 Syrians in Lebanon live underneath the extreme poverty line. What does this mean? This means that almost all Syrian refugees are living in extreme poverty. So they do not have enough money to afford meals. So they start by skipping meals or by prioritizing. So maybe if I have, I don't know, some bread and some rice or what have you, then it will go for the youngest uh, kid in the family. And I won't eat as a parent. So I spend my day without eating. So I skip meals and I do not have the money maybe to pay for the medicine or to pay for the doctor. So I do whatever I can do with my sick child or you know, my sick parents or my sick partner. They drop their children out of school 
because you, you need them to be with you to be working so that they can help you and help the family to put food on the table. 30% of Syrian refugee children have never been to school. That's a generation that is at risk of not getting proper education, of not being in a system that helps you you know, to acquire knowledge and to acquire skills and to develop on that and to grow into a person who can actually find a job or create or produce so that you can live. That's really scary as a, as a number. I've met many children, like four-year-old Ola, who every day she watches her, her eldest uh, brothers and sisters who are less than going to work instead of going to school. And she craves the day her mother would tell her, today you're going to school. And they dropped off school because the mother could no longer afford the transportation, which is as little as 20,000 Lebanese lira, which is less than one dollar. Humanitarian crisis is not only about moving from one place or another, it's what lies also beneath. It's what comes with that. Talal explained how visible the suffering is on the streets of Lebanon. To ask, it's like right, right there in your face. If you want to talk about a crisis, go down to the streets and just see, observe, and see how is this crisis showing itself, you know? And it shows itself by having kids, you know, asking for money in the, uh, instead of being at school. They are in the streets, families, like moms and, and children and uh, husbands without having a shelter. Dalau left me with some powerful words on the concept of resilience. This is why I stopped talking about resilience when talking about the situation of refugees in Lebanon. It just feels so counterintuitive to be saying that refugees are resilient when you are so deep and being pushed and forced into despair but then you would say it for a month, for a year, for two years, but for 11 years? It's more the situation of being stuck in something with no avail. It changes you as a person. So if you were this person who had this ability, mental agility as well, you know, to cope with whatever there is, after 11 years of being so in, in all those experiences and also in being also in a, in a country where the country itself is going through crisis after crisis, you would question that. You would really question it. And maybe your only resource would be your faith. Let's go back to my lovely friend Dara, who I hung out with a lot while I was in Beirut. Some of you might remember that Dara is a Swiss Syrian who has lived in Lebanon, working in the humanitarian sector here for years. She reiterated the severity of the economic crisis here and made it very clear why, as a refugee or an asylum seeker living here, you would want to leave. How are things here right now? Worse. We thought we've reached the abyss with the explosion, with the pandemic, the revolution not turning out the way we thought it would. The coins we used to have, the 250 and the 500 lira, I still have like a couple of them in a jar. This used to buy like a loaf of bread easily. Now we're making fun of like gluing it into like a piece of art because the material they're made of are more worth than the the value of the currency. 
it's really, really serious. And as I said, like, we're still expecting it to get worse. Lebanon isn't even a country. It's a corporation falling apart right now. And this includes stuff like having your garbage removed. We have dumpsters filled to the brink where people end up burning garbage, causing like smoke pollution. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's the very basics of a state that don't function anymore. Electricity, water, fuel, garbage removal, hospitals having electricity. It, it just... I have the privilege of a foreign European passport. So when I go to Switzerland, I, get, I come back to Lebanon with two suitcases. One is my private one. I fill it with like chocolate and things that I want. The second one is literally friends calling me to bring them baby milk. Mm -hmm. Baby milk. I have a friend who literally walks from pharmacy to pharmacy every other week, crying until they hand out the milk because they... Dara grew up in Switzerland to Syrian parents. She talks about the stark contrast between her life in Switzerland and her current situation in Beirut. I have the privilege to go home and see my family for a month in Europe and enjoy ridiculous things like tap water or telling my sister, oh, we don't have to turn on the water heater and um, worry about the washing machine. I can just take a hot shower. Oh, oh. There is a train. I can just get home. I can go to any shop and fix my laptop without having to worry that a spare part is not available because they can't import it because import taxes have become too expensive. So I asked Dara what the situation in Lebanon means for the most vulnerable people living there, refugees and asylum seekers without documentation or the ability to enter employment. Syrians uh, from all possible backgrounds, but they work with no work permits. And this is so sad, because if they would work officially, they would contribute mm -hmm. to paying taxes, to, to paying uh, insurance, healthcare, and then they would have the kind of salaries would, that would allow them to consume. Instead of foreign NGOs buying the bread and then distributing for free, Why don't you let these communities buy it for themselves? And add to the economy. Yeah. It makes no sense. The only sustainable way would for them to be included in the Lebanese market and to become official part of the Lebanese workforce. But Syrians as well as Palestinians are still not allowed to work in most sectors. They are reduced to sectors like agriculture. Construction. Construction, agriculture and domestic work. Mm -hmm. So let's just... Get that straight in our heads. So if you're a Syrian doctor mm. and you cross the border from Syria because of the war into Lebanon mm. with your family, mm. what are your options for seeking asylum here? There is no asylum in Lebanon. You can get residencies, but you have to pay like thousands of dollars to get someone to sponsor you. And that's ridiculous. You have to open a bank account in Lebanon and deposit $5,000 or 100 million Lebanese lira that will be then um, frozen for three months, basically. But no one, not even Lebanese, have that money unless they're from like the upper 10%. Mm -hmm. And as I said, asylum, like saying I'm politically persecuted and I'm seeking refuge and protection doesn't exist here. Okay, so basically... 
a lifestyle in Lebanon as a Syrian that looks fairly normal means that you need to have serious cash, basically, to to integrate, to, to live here. You need to have money. Yeah. Wow. So for 99% or the majority of Syrians, they're living without residency. Yeah. So I come here. I feel that the hospitality that I receive mm. at the hands of Syrians, but also of Lebanese, oh, you yeah. know, is incredible. People are happy to see us. We're welcomed and we have lovely interactions. And we're just here just because we want to be, you know, not because we've experienced trauma and pain and pushed. war or been pushed here. So, yeah, it's surprising to me that there can be two such different extremes. <laughs> extreme uh, experiences yeah just I, I can't get my head around it I'm, I'm sorry to say there is a racist mm. point behind it as well darker skinned people are treated less in Lebanon I mean I remember when we were hanging out together yesterday or the day before you mentioned how children who sell roses on the streets are literally pushed or almost mm. hit or, or beggars, or the young men who do the shoe shining. They are really poor. And I mean, they're not begging. They're actually trying to do an exchange of something. They give you a mm. rose, they take money. They shine your shoes, they get the money. And they're literally... And uh, by the way, um, that doesn't mean like I, I say that begging mm. is wrong. But they're even trying to make ends meet by mm. offering you something in return. And what and else you supposed to do? And they're abused. And yeah. they're being abused. It's, it's, there are some really extreme instances of really, really vile treatment. Like, I've also seen people that are my age, that grew up with a mm. similar education as I did, literally chase away two young boys. And I was like, who are you? Why would you do that? Dara talked more about how Syrians in Lebanon were often victims of physical abuse. See, like, a Syrian telling you about the scars he got from, from a beating. And you're just like, what's happening in people's minds to go to bed and know that they're violated someone's dignity and human rights and humanity and values and everything we stand for as human beings? So we've heard about life in Turkey and Lebanon, Syria's neighbouring countries, but before we finish today, I would also like to head back to Egypt. For many East Africans fleeing the dictatorship in Eritrea or the war in Ethiopia or the ethnic cleansing in Sudan, Egypt is one of the first countries that they find themselves in. So let's hear what life is like there, from a couple of the girls that I met in Cairo who are currently living in Egypt as refugees. Firstly, I'd like to introduce you to Susie, who fled Eritrea when she was 15 and has lived in Egypt for six years. She explains some of the barriers to education, healthcare, legal work, and also the daily harassment and racism that she too faces as part of life in Egypt. I came here when I was 16. It's very young. So young. And not knowing language, it's very, very difficult. I'm here since... 2016, that means like almost six years. No one wants to live in Egypt. If I want to study, there is not that much education access, but even the work is not stable work. It's not legal work. Housemates, cleaners, even in work, we need to be polite and nice because if we say something, they may not give us our salary. 
Mm-hmm. If we say something, they may kick us. If we say something, maybe they can take our passport or our ID. Still, we are not so equal. Mm-hmm. Not all. <laughs> there is no way to be equal with them. No. We face all the time harassment. Someone come and slap me. Mm-hmm. I don't have right to look back and say, why you do this? What makes difference me and other Egyptian girls, like we are both working, he didn't do anything to her, but maybe he threw something to me, or he slapped me, or he, he assaulted me, and he say black, and a lot of bad things. What makes difference? Me and the Egyptian girl. So harassment is our daily <laughs> exercise. From time to time, we accept it. We need rights. In other countries, there is right every kids or children they have right to attend education, at least governmental school, mm-hmm. right? Do you have any Egyptian friends or any connections with the Egyptian community here, or isn't it's a very separate? Very separate, because I went to supermarket to buy this apple. Mm-hmm. It's two pounds. There is other Egyptian. She wants to buy apple. He will sell for her two pounds. For me, he will save five pounds. Really? Yeah. I thought that was only us because we're white, so they're like, okay, you can pay mm-hmm. ten pounds. <laughs> no, your accent is different. They treat in a bad way. Like, maybe with yours it can be different, but with us it's very disrespectful mm-hmm. because I'm black or my accent is not much like the accent because it's not my language. They think that we came here for vacation or for mm. something else, but we didn't. <laughs> we didn't. They treat you in a bad way. Like, you're not human like them. You're black. You're dirty. You don't, you don't have anything. Susie is a Christian. She proudly wears the symbol of a cross around her neck, and she also has a tattoo of a cross on each of her hands. She explained why this had been a problem for her here in Egypt. When we came in Egypt in the first, it wasn't like that much stable country. There was conflict among Muslim and Christian. Mm-hmm. And if you go out, if they saw necklace, cross, or stamp in your hands, so having this, yeah, that, would, yes. that was something that you had to. Did you have to cover yes. it up? Or? Yes, I need to cover this, or I need to cover my necklace. Everything has become very difficult. There are some people that is the journey and trauma. Susie's words were echoed by Safa, a young girl from Somalia who I also met in Cairo. For one year, I get sick. And the issue of living in Egypt, if you go to any hospital or anything, you will not find the, the support. I had a tuberculosis. Tuberculosis? Yeah. Wow. It takes like one, one year to just find what's wrong with me. As a girl or, or as a woman, you will face many, many harassments from the Egyptians, mm-hmm. whether in uh, transportations or another places, if you say Someone harassed me. They will say like, "You are not the first one." We ha- happened to her this thing. So it's not safe for you to travel in the city alone. Yes, yes. For me, I didn't go outside the. If you need to come to work, for example, you can walk or get transportation safely. Or sometimes you can get transportation safely. Sometimes not. Mm. You have to watch 
in front of you or something, you have to put things in just no one can touch you. Do you see your future in, in Egypt? No, because it will be difficult. Now I'm thinking about my son. I really understand. So what would your hope or dream be for the future? A place who, which can I find my right. Mm. My, also my son to be in a good place, playing with the children. <laughs> So there you heard from Susie from Eritrea and Safa from Somalia. Life in Egypt means minimal access to healthcare, education and opportunities to work, as well as daily harassment and abuse. I caught up with a friend of mine, Katie, in a smoky coffee shop meets bookstore above an antique shop in a very cool neighbourhood in central Cairo. She's an activist who has worked in refugee response across Europe and has recently taken a job in the humanitarian space here in Egypt. The situation here is very complicated and it's very difficult to speak about. Egypt is a really interesting country in the refugee space because there are so many different nationalities here, people coming for different reasons, people is not often talked about and doesn't show up as much as the crisis in Greece, for example, or when uh, refugees and migrants end up in Western countries, right? When they end up on their shores and there's a lot of media coverage, but Egypt and other destination host transit countries are not like that. Uh, Lebanon's like, like that. Uh, Sudan is a huge uh, transit country and no one is talking about Sudan. Maybe we can talk a little bit about some of the cases you know that we've heard about on the podcast mm. already of harassment and discrimination mm. here in Egypt yeah you are here as a migrant yes. effectively yes. right and I am here right now as a visitor mm. too and it just feels so jarring constantly to mm. receive this kind of hospitable welcome yeah uh, in so many daily interactions mm. and hear that it's so different for people effectively with a different yeah. skin color do you think that's what it comes down to? Is it, is it that simple? There have been colonial influences in Egypt, right? Mm. And the, the younger generation is very interested and also forced to learn English and learn French and learn about the rest of the world. And so Egyptians have a lot of opportunities and like to go out and to, to meet people and to travel the world. And they love a certain type of foreigner. And some of them love all types of foreigners. There's definitely Egyptians like that. And I've met so many of them and they're the most lovely human beings and they welcome anyone of any skin color of any anything into our house. And that's amazing. But there are Because you group, live with Egyptians that are like that, right? Yeah. That represent that group of open-hearted, open-minded yes. Egyptians. Yes, and they're, they're amazing. And when you have that combination of people who are welcoming and open-hearted and have that Arab hospitality to everyone, it's a, it's a beautiful thing and it's something that all of us should be trying to replicate, right? But there are, it's in every country. I mean, I see it in my own country in the US, I see it in Europe. There are segments of the society who are warm and welcoming and there are segments who, who are not and who are hostile. Not just not warm and open and welcoming, but are actively hostile to people. In Greece, you see groups of people in the islands actively trying with their hands to push boats away from coming, right? Something I, I couldn't imagine and 
has also not been my experience with most Greek people, and yet they exist. And so I think the difference in Egypt maybe is the openness of harassment that kind of permeates all levels of society. I mean, you know, in, in Europe and in the US, there are people who are anti-migrant, anti-refugee, right? And they're very open about it. They're vocal about it. They put it on Facebook. The difference for a lot of them is they won't usually end up seeing migrants or refugees. Yeah. And, and that's why the they don't like them, maybe, because they've never, they've never met them. Where here in Egypt, you may end up living in a neighborhood, and many do, with Egyptians and migrants and refugees and asylum seekers. And so you see them more in your everyday life. And it's a bit easier, I guess, to identify, okay, these are African refugees. Or Syrians, for example, have a bit of a, not an easier time, but can integrate a bit more and are a bit more welcomed because initially also they came with money and so they were able to open businesses as well as the Yemenis in the first rounds too and were seen as more kind of productive members of the society by some groups of Egyptians, right? And whether or not that's the case with uh, Sudanese, Eritreans, Ethiopians, it's easy to identify them and say, oh, they live in a poor neighborhood or oh, they are the skin color. We don't accept them. It didn't feel right to leave Cairo without hearing from an Egyptian. After spending a little bit of time in Cairo, we had a favourite coffee shop with a lovely, friendly barista called Yasmin. I sat down with her outside the coffee shop while she was having a break and a cigarette to get her take on things. we all uh, human beings, so uh, I don't judge people. Jewish or gay or lesbians, I don't care. It's their lives. It's, my, it's not mine. Uh, I only care about my life. Uh, they're more than welcome. For me, for me, I don't speak for all of Egyptians. A lot of areas in Egypt are very dangerous. Do you ever have, like, arguments or discussion with your friends who think differently? Yes, 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 yes. Uh, my friends in work, they have different mindsets. They also judge people. If somebody who was a refugee hmm. came into the coffee shop that you work in, would like your colleague have judgment towards them or be rude to them? Has that happened before? Mm, uh, they uh, not being rude for them, but uh, they judge after they left. Okay. They judge. I, I see it. He's just a human being. Mm -hmm. He's uh, living in Egypt. He's not uh, held a gun to your head. Yeah. So they're not interested in having a discussion no. with someone with different ideas. No. So there you have it. First-hand accounts from those first safe countries, Turkey, Lebanon and Egypt. And I say safe, but you guys now know that what might be a safe place for one person does not mean that it's a safe place for all. We've heard stories of religious persecution, harassment, abuse, no pathways to legal work, access to healthcare, education and basically the inability to lead a normal life. So no wonder people continue. These stories amplify to me very clearly why people want more than what the first country can offer them. Next week, we'll be looking at what the onward journey looks like for people, the risks they take and the challenges they face as they cross land and sea in search of safety. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asylum Speakers, The Journey, brought to you in collaboration with Comic Relief and organisations funded through Comic Relief's Across Borders programme. You can find out how to support Comic Relief's work at comicrelief.com. To find out more about the people in today's show, check out the links in the show notes. Also remember that I'm always open to thoughts and feedback. 
To get in touch, send me a direct message on Instagram at the Worldwide Tribe. Other actions you can take to support this podcast and join the Worldwide Tribe are to visit our shop and to buy a t-shirt or a hoodie, or you can donate. All details are in the show notes and in my Instagram bio. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate it, share it and leave a review. It helps more people to find this podcast and it helps me to keep bringing you these stories. The more people who come on this journey with us, the more connected we all become and the more we unite as one worldwide tribe. shout out to alexander wells at alexanderwells.co.uk for our audio production and original score and to ez stone for mixing this episode